Good morning, beloved. It's good to see everybody. Um, I have a, it's a puck, a hockey puck. I think I talk about it a little too much, honestly, probably for most of you. I understand it's Florida. Not many of you are hockey fans, but I'm so excited. My son's playing hockey. And so I had told him a while back that I actually have an NHL hockey puck from a Stanley Cup playoff game. And I had not shown him until a couple days ago. And so he was super excited. Um, but it kind of begs the question, like, why had he not seen this? And I got to be honest with you, it lives in a box under my bed. And as a hockey fan, you're like, what kind of fan are you? Like, you have a Stanley Cup playoff puck um, that I was given it when I was a teenager. I wasn't at the game. Um, but in the 90s, uh, one of my friends, his stepdad, actually caught this at a Stanley Cup playoff game. The reason that I do not proudly display it, though, and it lives in a box under my bed, is that um, it's a New York Rangers puck. And I'm not a fan. <laughs> See? <laughs> It'd be under your bed, too, right? <laughs> Put that in a box. Let's get that out of here. <laughs> uh, but that, there's something to that that I, I don't display it because it's not my team. Uh, but uh, I'll tell you what was my team when I first started playing hockey. Uh, anybody remember Jeremy Yager, Mary Lemieux? What are you talking about? <laughs> yeah, so they were my two favorite players, and they were on the Pittsburgh Penguins team. And so when I first started playing hockey and loved hockey, I had to be a Penguins fan. And uh, it was a few years before I got to go to my first NHL game, and I lived in Central Florida, so we went to see the Tampa Bay Lightning play the Pittsburgh Penguins. And I was so stoked. I was just beyond excited. Like, I'm going to get to watch my favorite players. Like, they're going to be playing here in Florida. I get to watch all this stuff. And so I'm going. My dad is taking me. And his best friend is coming. And he's not really a hockey fan. But he's, so we're on the way there. And he starts to kind of give me a hard time. He's like, you like the Penguins? Like, yeah, aren't you going to root for them? My dad's kind of just siding with me out of being nice. Like, yeah, we're going to root for the Penguins. And my, my dad's friend is like, well, I'm rooting for Tampa. That's our local team. I was like, oh, well, we're going to crush Tampa. And lo and behold, um, I walked away in shame that night because Tampa Bay destroyed the Penguins. And that was my team. And so I just felt so embarrassed that they had lost to the Lightning. And then it was even more embarrassing that the Lightning went on to win the Stanley Cup that year. And so living in Florida, then I'm in this kind of like rough spot of like, that's our local team. Like, and they're winning. <laughs> I want to root for them, but I feel this shame that like, I'm a Penguins fan and they killed the Penguins. And, and so that was my moment of conversion. Um, but it was full of shame. And uh, yeah, and ever since then, I've been a Tampa Bay Lightning fan. So, and then we won again in quarantine COVID last year, which was awesome. So, uh, but here's the thing, like that's silly, but it actually speaks to something so much more. That like we hide things uh, and our confession is often hidden. Like, what are we willing to express? What will we share with people? And so I just want to kind of, like, let's, let's get uncomfortable. What are you hiding? What in your life are you hiding right now? What is the thing that you don't want to confess? That not only do you not want to confess it, but you are afraid to confess. And I've done this long enough to know it's almost every one of us. Now, there is not a person that I have encountered on this planet that does not have deeper sin and more going on than anybody ever actually really knows excepting God. And so that's not to shame you. That's not to, um, I, I'm with you. 
But it's a question we must wrestle with. What are we hiding? And, and ultimately, what is our confession? What will we unashamedly confess to the world? Or at least to someone. And so um, we are in Mark, and we're getting close to the, the conclusion of our series, um, encountering Jesus and the Gospel of Mark, that this changes everything. And so as we've been walking through this, um, we, we're in Passion Week, and so we walk through, um, we have the the, the institution of the Lord's Supper, and so we made a huge shift as a church that we now partake of the Lord's Supper on a weekly basis as believers. And just um, so, if you don't, if you were not here for that, I would really encourage you to go through that sermon and just hear kind of what your pastors have wrestled with and, and why we think that this is valuable weekly. Um, and then we walked into this this situation where Jesus has been arrested, and the 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 Roman governor, if you will, the prefect Pilate, is like, "Look, here's this tradition. I'm going to give you somebody back." And so he pits. Jesus against Barabbas, who's a known murderer, and just all this insanity ensues as the crowds choose Barabbas. Um, But we saw how that's a beautiful gospel picture of us walking away guilty and yet free, and Christ innocent, now condemned. And so that's kind of where we are in this, that uh, we left off with Jesus being handed over to be flogged. Jesus has been flogged, and um, flogging in that, in that time was a Roman practice, that the Jews would often um, beat people with these rods, and, and yet the flogging was this Roman practice where they had the cat of nine tails. And, and today, just disclaimer, this is the gospel, it's brutal. Um, this cat of nine, these leather cords that they would often put fragments of glass or broken bone, just sharp objects, and as they would strap someone to a pole with their bare back exposed, and they would come across them and just whip into them with this, and it would actually sink in and tear the flesh from you and start to tear out muscle, and all these nerve endings are just exposed, and it's just absolutely awful. And so Jesus has now been flogged. And he's turned over. And this is where we pick up. We're in chapter 15. Mark chapter 15, if you have your copy of scripture. Mark chapter 15, starting in verse 16, um, just where we left off last week. It says, The soldiers led him away into the palace, that is the governor's residence, and called the whole company together. And so, um, just so you know the context of where this is now happening, um, this is the fortress known as Antonia. And so this is actually has been built into the temple compound. And so the, the, the Romans occupying this know, like, here is kind of the hotbed of tension here. Like, if something's going to go haywire in Jerusalem, it's probably going to start at the temple. Like, the, this is, like, so deeply personal to all of these Jews that, like, this is, this is the, the catalyst point. Like, geographically, this is where things will go down. And so, so much so that that's where they actually stationed their fortress, like on the temple compound. And so Jesus is now led here. Uh, They're calling it this palace. And so here he is now. And imagine like now that context of this is happening in the temple area. As Jesus is looking like the dwelling place of God on earth, like where the holy of holies is, the innermost room where the Ark of the Covenant is to be and all this stuff, like this is here. And now watch what happens. They dressed him in a purple robe signifying royalty. They dressed him in a purple robe, twisted together a crown of thorns and put it on him. And so Caesar would have this crown that he would wear that would ornate his head. And here they take thorns. And so just imagine, thorns wound together, bound up into this circle and then sunk into his head. Thorns. They put it on him and they began to salute him. Hail, King of the Jews! 
And you have to read that with the sarcasm that is fully intended. Look at you with your royal purple robe and your crown adorning your head. Hail, King of the Jews! Saluting him. They were hitting him on the head with a stick and spitting on him. Getting down on their knees, they were paying him homage. After they had mocked him, they stripped him of the purple robe and put his clothes on him. This is heartbreaking to imagine. Like, if you've you've been reading through the gospel with us, like, all of what Jesus has done, just full of compassion and unmatched power, and how he's pouring himself out and teaching everyone what it is to actually love each other, to love God and love others. And now here he is. And these Roman soldiers are making a mockery of him. Like, let's dress him up like a king getting on their knees, hail, king of the Jews. Just absolutely awful. But then you think about this from the perspective of these soldiers, these Roman soldiers. I've heard about him. This guy claims he's a king. He claims to be God. (laughs) He says he's the son of God. We've heard about the things that he can do, these miracles and stuff. Like, I don't know that I buy it. You know, the Jews, they're always hyping something up. But we know this guy. He's a rebel. He thinks that he's going to oust Caesar. Well, you know what? I'm a professional at getting rid of guys like you. I'll put you in your place. I'll show you who you really are. I will make this embarrassing for you. Have you guys heard the claims of this guy? Let's show him a thing or two. And so you think about it. From their perspective, this makes sense. To make an absolute mockery out of Jesus the Christ. Make him look like a king. Mock him, spit on him, hit him with a stick. But all the while, hail king of the Jews, here he is. And it keeps going, verse 20. And the second half, it says, they led him out to crucify him. They forced a man coming in from the country who was passing by to carry Jesus' cross. He was Simon of Cyrene, the father of Alexander and Rufus. And so what we piece together here is that you remember Jesus has already been flogged. People would often die just from being flogged. And now he's been beaten, spit on, people hitting him with sticks, all this stuff. And now um, what's happening is you would often, when, when you're crucified, they would crucify you outside of the city because who wants that right there in the middle of the city? Um, so they would lead you out and often the person being crucified, um, the, the vertical pole would already be, the stake would already be erect at a point. Um, and so you would take your crossbeam and have to carry that. And it'd basically be this parade where everyone can see as you're walking through the city. Look at this guy. And so Jesus has to carry it. And we know from the other gospels, that like he at this point is already so exhausted and hurting that he, he stumbles and he can't keep going. And so they employ this other guy, Simon of Cyrene, to take his cross and follow with him. And they're, they're just huge things for us to learn from this, that, that there's help is given to Jesus at this point. Simon has to step in and help Jesus march to his death. Uh, but there's a help given to us, actually multiple helps, but I, I want to point out two of them for you. Um, one, because we live in such a skeptical postmodern culture, um, you see the beauty of this and how reliable scripture is, that he's pointing out he, by name, Simon helped. You know Simon the son, or the father of Alexander and Rufus. 
Mark writes this in such a way that we can't deny the fact that he clearly expected the people he's writing to to know Alexander and Rufus. And that's such a comfort to us when we question, like, can we trust scripture? I mean, he's writing this in such a way that people reading this are like, oh, I know Alexander. I know Rufus. Yeah, we've heard about his dad. We know the story. Yeah, this happened. We know him. This gives such historic detail and credibility. It's reliable for us. Um, But the other thing it does for us, um, Rufus and Alexander are known by the Christians receiving this gospel, it seems most likely because Simon became a believer in Jesus and then discipled his sons into the faith. And so this is just beautifully showing us that Jesus was right. Christian, you want to follow Jesus? Then it looks like picking up a cross and following him. And this actually happens as Jesus is walking his own cross to his death. That a follower of him will literally take up a cross And that does not mean we literally take up crosses, but it means we absolutely now die to ourselves and live to follow him. So, here we continue. Verse 22 says, They brought Jesus to the place called Golgotha, which means place of the skull. They tried to give him wine mixed with myrrh, but he did not take it. And why would they give him wine mixed with myrrh? Uh, Because these had pain-deadening qualities. Like, this is like taking some Tylenol, but beefed up. Like, this is going to hurt. You're already hurting. This is going to hurt really bad. So have this so you don't feel it quite as bad. It's going to dull your senses. But what does Jesus do? No, thanks. He does not accept it. He doesn't accept the help because he accepts the full weight of what is happening. Verse 24, then they crucified him and divided his clothes, casting lots for them to decide what each would get which is a direct fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy. Now it was nine in the morning when they crucified him. The inscription of the charge written against him was, the king of the Jews, still mocking him. This is his charge. He's remember Pilate's like, what, what do I charge him with? He's done nothing. They're like, crucify him, crucify him. It's like, okay, we'll crucify him because he's the king of the Jews. Just press it in a little more. They crucified two criminals with him, one on his right and one on his left. Those who passed by were yelling insults at him, shaking their heads and saying, ha, the one who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself by coming down from the cross. In the same way, the chief priests with the scribes were mocking him among themselves and saying, he saved others, but he cannot save himself. Let the Messiah, the King of Israel, come down now from the cross so that we may see and believe. Even those who were crucified with him taunted him. This is is our king. This is Jesus. Nailed to a cross. And everyone around is mocking him still. Baker, Encyclopedia of the Bible, um, writes this just kind of explaining, because we don't see crucifixions too often anymore. And often it's made to be far less brutal than it actually was, but it says crucifixion was universally recognized as the most horrible type of death. In the East, in fact, it was used only as a further sign of disgrace for prisoners already executed, usually by decapitation. In the East, (laughs) it would still give you the the dignity of like, before we crucify you, we'll go ahead and decapitate you. And then just to make a public statement, then we'll crucify you. But in the West, 
the condemned criminal was scourged or beaten, usually at the place of execution, and forced to carry the crossbeam to the spot where a stake had already been erected. A tablet stating the crime was often placed around the offender's neck and was fastened to the cross after the execution. The prisoner was commonly tied or sometimes nailed to the crossbeam with the nails through the wrist since the bone in the hand would not take the weight. The beam was then raised and fixed to the upright pole. If the executioners wished a particularly slow, agonizing death, they might drive blocks or pins into the stake for a seat or a step to support the feet. Death came about through the loss of blood circulation followed by coronary collapse. That could take days. So often the victim's legs would be broken below the knees with a club, causing massive shock and eliminating any further possibility of easing the pressure on the bound or spiked wrists. Usually a body was left on the cross to rot, but in some instances was given to relatives or friends for burial. This is insane. This is Jesus, the Son of God, nailed to a cross. And everyone around is making fun of him. (laughs) He saved others. Save yourself. Come on down and we'll believe. You want us to believe in you? You're always saying believe and follow you? Yeah, I'll do that. Just come right on down. Save yourself. You can't even do that. Everything he did must have been a hoax. How did he trick us? What is this? Look at him. He's stuck. He's bleeding like us. Son of God. (laughs) You understand, like, this still makes sense to people watching to treat him like this. Because if you're a Jew and you've heard the promises for, for all of your life that the Messiah is to come, someone is coming who's going to save us, and you heard the uproar just a few days prior, Hosanna, Hosanna, glory to God in the highest. The king has come. He's coming in the city. He's gonna get these Roman idiots out of here. We're going to be God's people. Everyone's gonna acknowledge it. We'll have a king reigning over us. Yes, here he comes. What? What kind of a king is this? Look at the crown of thorns on his head. Yeah, some king, you weren't the king we were told to wait for. Look at you dying. The Romans are killing you. You didn't do anything for us. How could this be the king? And they make fun of him. This makes sense to them. If he is not actually God, if he is not actually the Messiah, it makes total sense to make fun of him and watch him die in agony. But here's the thing. Everything they're saying, do this for yourself, save yourself, come down. Everything that they're saying he cannot do for himself is exactly what he is doing for them. He's not there to save himself. He's there to save them. So we keep going in verse 33. It says, when it was noon, darkness came over the whole land until three in the afternoon. And at three, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which is translated, my God, my God, why have you abandoned me? When some of those standing there heard this, they said, see, he's calling for Elijah. Someone ran and filled a sponge with sour wine, fixed it on a stick, offered him a drink and said, let's see if Elijah comes to take him down. Jesus let out a loud cry and breathed his last. Jesus has died. Screaming, God, my God, why have you abandoned me? Why? Why would Jesus breathe his last 
in agony, crying out, why God, have you abandoned me? He did this so that we would never be abandoned. So that I can say with full assurance, God will never leave me, he will never forsake me because he forsook his own son so that I would not be forsaken. Jesus has died so that we would not have to die this death. And Jesus said this is why he came. This is why emphatically through the whole gospel, he said, it's not about these signs, guys. You want more bread. You want more healing. You want all this stuff. I came for so much more. I came to start a kingdom. But it's not a kingdom like you think. It's forever. And your real healing, it's not about your headache. It's not about your fever. It's not about you being able to see or walk. It's about you living forever and the freedom from the disease that is forever fatal to you that is sin and I've come to rectify this. This is why he said in Mark chapter 10, you think back, we read it verse 10 or verse 45. It said, for even the son of man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. You know what a ransom is? Someone has been taken hostage. Someone is captive and some payment must be made for that person to be free. We have been taken captive by sin. You are not free. You are stuck in your sin and there's nothing you on your own can do about that. You love the idea of free will and here we are in Western culture, America, we love our autonomy. We love, I am my own man. I, the American dream, I will do this. No, you will not. And I will not. We are slaves to sin. The scriptures make that emphatically clear from start to finish. You are stuck and dead in your sin. A cost must be paid for you to be free. And Jesus said, I have come to pay the cost. I will be the ransom that gives you freedom. So for once, you will actually be free. This is why he came he came so we could be free. And Colossians 2 says it like this. Says, and when you were dead in your trespasses and in the uncircumcision of your flesh, he made you alive with him and forgave us of all of our trespasses. He erased the certificate of debt with its obligations that was against us and opposed to us and has taken it away by nailing it to the cross. All of our debt, all of our sin, and what is justly due because of our rebellion, our offenses against God and each other and our own selves, all of that is standing against us in this legal sense. There's a record, there's empirical evidence, there's no way we're getting out of it. It is clear. We are guilty. It stands against us with all of the ramifications, all of the consequences, the wrath that is to come justly do on us. It stands opposed to us, saying, just wait, I'm coming. And you think, we feel it now, but oh God, there's a day coming when you will feel the full force of it. And yet here is Jesus saying, no, when you were dead, when you could do nothing to save yourself, you're the enemy of God. And all that was stood against you, all of what was condemning you, all the weight of your sin, all the consequence of all of that, he took it. It was nailed to a cross. And what was nailed to a cross? Your sin. But what was nailed to the cross? Jesus. That Jesus took on all of our sin. All of it, he bore on himself. For everyone who would put their faith in him, he bore all of our sin. 
and it was nailed to a cross. And you just imagine the magnitude of what that means. Then we think like, yeah, this life is hard. Like sin, you talking about it, being a slave? Like, I get it. <laughs> like, I, I'm constantly falling into this. And Jesus knows even more than you do. He knows the weight of sin and how it entices us and pulls on us. And he became really human, still fully divine, but really fully human. And he experienced this with us. He knows better than we do what temptation is. C.S. Lewis, he actually wrote about this, and it's just brilliant. He said, you find out the strength of a wind by trying to walk against it, not by lying down. A man who gives into temptation after five minutes simply does not know what it would have been like an hour later. That is why bad people, in one sense, know very little about badness. They have lived a sheltered life by always giving in. Have you thought about that? That we don't even know the full weight of temptation and sin because we succumb to it. But Jesus, sinless, never fell. He never gave in to temptation, so he knows the full weight of what it is pressing against us. He knows it. And not just temptation, but he knows the full weight of the misery, the agony, the curse of sin. Because he took every bit of it on himself. The 2 Corinthians 5.21, for our sake, he who knew no sin became sin. So that in him we might become the righteousness of God. That he took it all on himself. He felt the full weight of every one of our sins in dying. Can you imagine the emotional trauma, the spiritual trauma, not just the physical trauma. The physical trauma was probably nothing compared to the weight of all of our wretchedness placed on him, being nailed to a cross. The full weight of the just wrath of God poured out on him. Him, taking away the entire record of debt that stood against us, taking it on himself, and screaming out, my God, my God, why have you abandoned me? So that we would not be abandoned. Verse 38, Jesus has died and says, then the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. Do you know what the veil and the temple was for? This is a thick veil. It's not just like it goes one way like these stage curtains. Like you have to kind of like wade your way through this. And what it did was it separated the innermost room, the Holy of Holies, where the presence of God would dwell above the mercy seat of the Ark of the Covenant. And the priest would come in once a year with bells on. And legend tells us, writings tell us that seem pretty reliable. They would tie a rope to him. Because if he came in there and he had not purified himself properly, he would die in the presence of God, coming in to make this atonement offering on behalf of the people. And so they'd have to just pull that guy out. You don't hear the bells ring anymore. He, he didn't make it. You don't want to see him there. Because you can't see God and live. It's not going to go well for you. So put up this massive curtain. Like There's a separation. You are out there, and God is in here. There's this hiding you don't, want, you don't want to be face-to-face to God. So it will be your undoing. He is holy, and he is just, and his wrath against all of our rebellion. 
And as Jesus dies, this temple from top to bottom is torn in two. And just imagine being one of the priests on duty that day, guarding the temple. And for years, you've just seen, there's that curtain. I'll never see the other side of it. I'll never get to see the other side of that curtain. And you're just walking along. You've heard about all that's going on, and suddenly it's dark. It's dark for three hours. Like, what is going on? The earth starts shaking. The, the ground is moving. All this, this is insane. And you look over, and the temple veil has been torn in two, and you're looking straight at, into this room, the Holy of Holies, like, <gasps> I'm gonna die, I'm gonna, I'm not dying, I'm alive. What is this madness? Why, why is the Holy of Holies open to everyone now? We can all look right inside. Because Jesus has been the ultimate mediator. He stands between us and the Father. He is our atoning sacrifice that is once and for all. He will never die again. He has died once and it was good for everyone who put their faith in him. Now you have direct access to God. You don't have to hide anymore. Stop hiding. What are you afraid to confess? What is the sin in your life that you think, I've got to take this to the grave? If my wife ever found out what I did that day, oh, if, if anyone knew my addiction, how I just run home so I can look at more porn. Or I just, I just get so caught up. I, just, I need this and this. And there's so many things that we throw ourselves in idols. What are you hiding? And the cross says, stop hiding. The veil has been torn. There is no more hiding. You're face to face with God and it's safe. There's peace that has been bought by his blood. You're free. So stop hiding. You're forgiven. The debt has been paid. The debt has been paid. But here's the thing. Your sin was nailed to the cross. So leave it there. He's called us to walk in holiness. In light of the crucified son of God, your sin was nailed to the cross. So stop trying to walk around with it. Leave it there. It's done. I'm preaching to myself. We have got to see the cross. <laughs> this, this is our freedom. The veil has been torn. We're now free in the presence of God. With boldness, we approach the throne of grace because it is a throne of grace that we don't deserve to be here, but now we come with grace and confidence. We have a faithful high priest who can sympathize with us in all of our weakness. And he stands there as our mediator. Come, come into the presence of God. Your sin has been paid for. This is the fulfillment of Isaiah 53, 4 to 5, where it says, Yet he himself bore our sickness, and he carried our pains, but we in turn regarded him stricken, struck down by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced because of our rebellion, crushed because of our iniquities. Punishment for our peace was on him, and we are healed by his wounds. So your sin has been nailed to the cross. You're free. Your peace, your peace with God has been bought by the blood of Jesus. He was crushed for our iniquities. His wounds are our healing. And you may be sitting there thinking like, but how do I know if that's true for me? Because I'm going to tell you, it's not true for everyone. It's only true for those for whom he intended it to be true, those who put their faith in him. And so you have to ask the question, is that true for me? Is my sin actually nailed to a cross 2,000 years ago? Or does it still stand against me? And this is the thing. 
You know the answer to that based on how you answer the question, what is your confession? What is your confession? How do I know if all of what Jesus accomplished on the cross is true for me? It depends entirely on your confession. What is your unashamed confession? Look at this in verse 39. When the centurion who was standing opposite him saw the way he breathed his last, he said, truly this man was the son of God. And this forms an inclusio. Uh, we've talked about that. Like, I, I want you to be a literate reader of the Bible. And you have to see how there are so many things that are so intentional in their structure and what they're communicating to us, what they're emphasizing. And so the inclusio here, the inclusio means like there's something emphasized by things that are bracketed. And so we started this with Jesus has been handed over and the Roman soldiers make a mockery of him. Hail king of the Jews! They're beating him. They're, they're all this stuff, just making an absolute mockery of him. This is their confession. And now you watch as, as they witness this happen. The, the, the sky has gone dark. There's an earthquake. Tombs are opening up. We, we know from other gospels that the tomb that Jesus is placed in is apparently kind of like really close. As you can imagine, there are tombs around that are opening up. Like this is insane, the stuff that is happening. The temple veil is torn. Jesus screaming out these words, refusing the help. And now you're back to a Roman soldier's perspective. And the centurion, who just a while earlier is mocking him, is now looking and says, truly this is the son of God. This is now his confession, which is so rare in the entire gospel of Mark. Now here's a Roman soldier who's now full unashamed confession. So everyone could hear, that's the son of God. And so will you see the cross? Look at the cross and what Jesus has done there, bearing the weight of the sin of the world, dying this death that you and I deserve. And now what is your confession? What is your unashamed confession? Who is he? Who is he? <laughs> Look at the cross. How much louder could God have confessed his love for us? He couldn't. This is the absolute loudest. Like, if you want to know if God is for you, look to the cross. Does he love us? Our vision text as a church, 1 John 4, 7 to 9, it ends with that statement that like, God's love was revealed in this, that he sent his only son to die so we could have eternal life. This is the ultimate proof that God loves us. Nailed to a cross, dying for us. His confession is not bashful. He loves us. He loves you. So what is your confession of him? How loud can we be with our confession of love for him in response to his love for us? Let's be loud with it. Will we tell the world, worship, give glory to God. This is the most glorious God ever. A God who is exalted as king with a crown of thorns nailed to a cross, lifted up. And he said, if I'm lifted up, I will draw men to myself. So let's continue to lift him up. Make that your confession. He is the son of God. He has died for me. He loves me. Tell the world your confession in light of your freedom that your sin was nailed to a cross. So leave it there. Let's go tell the world. And as we conclude, I just say, like, let's do this. Next week is Easter. It's one of the easiest invitations we get all year where more people than almost any other time of the year will say, yeah, I'll come to church. Invite some people. I want you to know this is what we believe. This is what we celebrate. 
every day of our life, but we come together as a church family on Sundays to just encourage each other and sit under the word and just preach and, and hear this good news, and I want you to know it. I want you to know the God who loves me so much that he died for me. This can be true for you too. So will you invite others? And, and I'm, I'm gonna change it a bit. Like usually you hear pastor like, yeah, we're gonna give you cards and just go invite everybody, put a bumper sticker on you or whatever. We're not gonna do that. We'll, we'll make a graphic and you can share it, but I want you to do that personally. Because that's what Jesus modeled for us. And so here's what I want us to do. I want you to pray, and I'm gonna be praying so hard this week for you that God would convict the mess out of you until you do this. <laughs> just know that. Will you pray and ask God, who is someone that I can just introduce to this faith? And it might start with just simply saying, hey, I'm part of a small church plant. You wanna come Sunday? We're celebrating Easter. Just you wanna come? I'd love for you to come. Make sure they know that you want them to come because you care about them. Start with something simple like that, but this is what I'm gonna ask. Don't stop there. Just pick one person, invite them, but then commit to praying for them for a whole year and doing your best to disciple them. Jesus said, follow me and I will make you fishers of men. Follower of Jesus, you need to be making other followers of Jesus. The Great Commission was preach this gospel to all nations, but teach them to observe everything I've commanded you. It doesn't stop with just introducing them to Jesus. Look, hey, I'm following Jesus. Follow in. Let's walk together. Let's start reading the Bible together. I don't know very well, but let's learn together. But will you commit just one person? Imagine how beautiful. If each of us could just disciple one person for a year. Imagine all that God has taught you that you can now teach that person for a year. And then let them teach someone else for a year. And, and we are not about explosive growth, but we are absolutely about the glory of God. And God's heart is for all people. So let's go get them and bring them to Jesus to see this glorious God nailed to a cross and say, that's where my sin was left. And now I walk in freedom, full forgiveness. He is glorious. He is the son of God. Let's pray. God, we thank you so much that you love us. And... While that term is used so just dismissively in our culture, God, we see true love. And the way that you have loved us is sacrifice. But it was joyful that you wanted to do this. And God, you are so incredible. We thank you. God, make us like this centurion. That we would see your cross and we would be changed by the reality of your death on our behalf. Give us faith. Grow us. Help us, God, to then unashamedly just confess to the world, you are the Christ, Jesus. You are Messiah. Every knee will bow. Every tongue confess. You are Lord. Help us, God. We love you. We pray this in Jesus' name.